Let's turn to 2 Corinthians 13 today. 2 Corinthians 13. And I'd like to ask you that question today, which is also the, the title of, of the message. 2 Corinthians 13, it's a passage that parallels uh, to some degree what we read in 1 Corinthians 11. But in this case, I, I, I want to read this passage because I, I think it it, it's something that we think about, as, especially as we near Passover, as we near the days of unleavened bread, but it's something that we think about all the time. And here we are as, as God's people, in a sense, between uh, the holy days in terms of the plan of God, between now uh, the, the, the New Testament church forming in 31 AD to the return of Christ, we're living in that age. And we know that we're nearer, nearer to that end than we are uh, the, the beginning of, of when it all started back in 31 AD. 2 Corinthians 13.5 makes a statement, which is one that is very familiar to all of us, but it's one that I want us to consider today. And, and here's, here's the question that I'll ask as we read this verse. Is anyone here trifling with God's Holy Spirit? Is any one of us in here trifling with God's Holy Spirit, making light of that, not taking it for the value that, that it is, the essence, the incredible calling, the, the most priceless gift that we as any human being could ever experience. The people in this room, those who are baptized and those who have had hands laid upon them, you and I have received the most incredible gift that anyone could ever receive in this life. We are the richest of all people in the world. We are the most blessed and we're humbled by that. To have the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to cover our sins, to have hands laid on a upon us and to receive God's Holy Spirit to where the Father and the Son dwell in us. Is there, is there anything else that is of more value than that? This day pictures, as we know, as, as, as probably already has been discussed, it, it pictures the, the time of when that, that began on, on a large scale level, some 50 days after the, the wave sheaf had been offered. Let's look here at 2 Corinthians 13, 5, as we consider this question. Paul says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Are you in the faith? Am I in the faith? Am I in this belief system? Am I truly in that? Have I truly fully engaged in every aspect of, of this way of life? Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? How is Jesus Christ in us? He is in us by the Holy Spirit, their, their essence dwelling in us. They've made their homes in us, as we've said. Do we not know that that is the case, he says here, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you're, you're disqualified, unless indeed, as the margin renders, uh, unless indeed we don't stand the test how are we standing the test right now? How are we as we look forward to the future and we see the challenges that are, are going on in this world that will continue to intensify? Are, are we standing the test now? Are we striving to stand the test? But he says, I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Examine yourselves, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed, you do not stand the test. You know, on the morrow after the Sabbath in 31 AD, early in the morning, Mary Magdalene, uh, Mary, another Mary, and, and several of the ladies came to the tomb with their spices to put on this man who had lived and died and whose body was decaying because they didn't want it to, to smell bad. So they came and did that honorable thing to come and, and continue to put some spices there on that day. The morrow after the Sabbath, during the days of unleavened bread, uh, a little after the three days and three nights would have passed. So here they are, they're coming in the morning and they find the tomb uh, is, is uh, the, those large stones been rolled away from the tomb. And what in the world? Somebody came and stole his body? What, what happened? And then these two angels are there, and then they see a caretaker there and uh, wondering what's going on. And he starts talking with them a little bit. And then at some point he says, Mary. 
and she says, Rabboni. This being, this person that we had traveled with and walked around and had taught God's way and we watched, we watched him die uh, there at Golgotha. And then this being is alive. And she, in her excitement, runs to grab onto him and, and hold on to her master, her rabbi, her teacher, the son of God. And he says, don't, don't touch me. Don't touch me yet. I've not yet ascended to the father. Don't cling to me. He was that, that first fruits offering, as we know. Did you talk about that this morning? Anyone? Anyone? Okay. okay. Anyway, so he was that first, first fruits offering. As we know in Leviticus 23, it talks about that time period on the morrow after the Sabbath when the wave sheaf offering is, is, is presented before God. And, and they say, he instructs them not to partake of any of that, that first fruits harvest. Don't partake of any of that. Don't, don't start taking in of that until you've presented that offering to me and I've accepted that offering. Jesus Christ was that offering. He was uh, to be accepted by the Father as he rose to the Father on that, uh, on, uh, of course he had been resurrected later that afternoon on Sabbath, but that morning on the morrow after the Sabbath, the first fruits offering was presented before the eternal. And what that would have been like to to see that happen and then to have him come back down the next uh, 40 days and begin to pre present himself to, to others, large numbers of people there with, within that group, instructing them on what's going to happen next. Now remember, I want you to tarry in Jerusalem, stay there for another uh, few days until the promise of the Father comes, so, so hang on. So here they are, they're in Jerusalem after they've seen him uh, ascend again to the Father as, as Acts 1 tells us and the angel says he's, he's going to come again. Don't you know that he's going to come back again? So he's ascended and here they are. They're, they're waiting in Jerusalem for this, this promise to come. And, and they're in a room and they're gathered together and they're praying and we've got to get another apostle. Uh, Judas did what he did. So we, we, we need to assign another one as, as scripture tells us. So they uh, went through the process of determining another apostle and here they are, they're waiting. They're waiting. What is, what is going to happen? What's going to happen next? So here we come then to the Feast of Pentecost. Acts 2 tells us we, we come to that day and then all of a sudden, can you imagine, can, can you imagine this, the rush that, that comes in? The, here they are, they're gathered and, and the rush and the shaking of, of, uh, of, the, of the building there to where you've got all of these, these Jews from all around the, the Roman Empire, the devout Jews that are coming in to keep the Feast of Pentecost because they believe they should keep the the Feast of Pentecost. It's a pilgrimage. Here they are, they're there. And all of a sudden they hear this noise and this rattling, almost like the way that those flowers rattled uh, when uh, one of our uh, folks came up here. But I'm sure the rattling, I thought, whoa, that's going to go. It didn't though. Well, well done, Mr. Jones. But, but anyway, it, it stayed. But, but the rattling and the shaking, to see all of that happen. And then all of a sudden, these hicks from the sticks are, are teaching God's word. They're teaching God's word in, in various dialects that uh, from these people all across the, the empire, and they're hearing God's word expounded. They're not talking gibberish. They're not flopping around uh, some kind of gibberish language out of control. They're teaching about this, this human being that was the son of God, that is now back at the right hand of God. And, and serving in the capacity that he was as high priest, the one who was an offering for all of us. And what that would have been like to, to be there and, and, and experience that. And yet here these folks realize as Peter goes through his message and says, you know, ultimately you're the ones who put this person to death. And when they, they realize all of that, these, these are devout folks. These are folks that have studied the law and studied the prophets. And, and it's beginning to click with them, all of these passages that they've grown up and memorized and known that this was all pointing to this being that is now uh, has ascended back to, to uh, heaven and, and the one who has given these men uh, his Holy Spirit to preach and teach and, and, and to transform their lives. Can you imagine being there in that? And then to recognize Peter when these, they say, well, what are we supposed to do about this? Repent, repent, get baptized, be dunked in the water, be buried, bury the old self. 
and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit as your sins are forgiven with, with hands laid upon them, of course, as we know scripture tells us. To have all of that happen, and then here we come, 3,000 people baptized. 3,000 people later in Acts 4, we see now it's 5,000 men. This is exploding. Can you imagine the joy of what, it's, what it would be like to be able to be there and be connected at that kind of level and seeing the fulfillment of this and to see God blessing this with all these people coming into the faith, the excitement, the newness of it, the joy, the death, his resurrection, and, and all of this happening now with the, the power of, of God working in each and every one of them. So here they are. They're in that. They're seeing these men speak with authority. They're preaching. They're teaching. They're laying it all out succinctly on what's happened. And then let's come to, let's start reading now in Acts 4. Let's go to Acts 4. So this has happened. Of course, uh, the latter part of Acts 2 talks about... <clears throat> how uh, they shared what they had. They were able to continue staying there. Uh, you know, again, to, to be there in that situation and to see the fulfillment of that, that this is the Messiah. This was the first coming of the Messiah and the Messiah is going to come again. We're a part of a group now that's going to proclaim that he is coming again. Just like the angel said in Acts 1 that he's coming again. We're a part of that now. We're a part of that and we have his essence in us. Look at the the... Uh, attitude of Peter and John as they're here in Acts 4. Acts 4 verse 7. Acts 4 verse 7. This was when they're brought before the Sanhedrin. We've got this individual that's been lame from a very young age uh, that, that has been healed and so many people saw it. Uh, this, this fellow that uh, has been lame and, and they, they said we, money and we don't have but we can, we can heal you and, and he's healed. And he's uh, all of a sudden, he's leaping up and running and jumping and praising God. Uh, our youngest, uh, our youngest, our one and only grandson, Jack, is walking. Okay, he's walking. Uh, he, he started walking a little bit late. But uh, those of you that have, have seen how it is for a, a young one to walk, Jack started with this base. You know, he's, he gets this good wide stance like this. And then when he walks, it's like he has no knee joints. You know, it's kind of like, ooh you know, back and forth and, and wobbling, but, but, but he's getting there and he's, he's very happy to be able to move about, even though if he goes down to all, all fours, he can explode with great speed. He's pretty, pretty skilled at that. But at some point he's going to need to, to stand up with the rest of the world. So he, he realizes that and he's, he's walking and, and it, it's a little bit awkward, but it's, it's a cool thing to see. This man is not walking like this. What are these legs? I've got to get my balance. He's leaping and jumping immediately, never having walked and praising God. So they, they're seeing this. Everybody has seen that. So now let's come to, uh, as, as we see the Sanhedrin uh, arresting them and then bringing these folks before the Sanhedrin. Verse 7, and when they had set them in the midst, they asked, by what power? Or by what name, what, what, what power and authority, what name have you done this? Peter filled with the Holy Spirit. Not, not individuals that are, are fearful previously and, and, and waiting to see what's going to happen and, and staying in hiding because they know what happened to Jesus Christ. Even though he said this promise was coming, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and filled with a confidence. And he says, rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if, if this day were judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means, uh, he, by what means he's been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, by the power, by the authority of this individual, the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief's cornerstone. Oh, the, the Sanhedrin and all those that are part of that, that look back and their knowledge of the law and the prophets, the writings, all of those things, and seeing the foundation from which they came. We've got this man coming and saying, of all that, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone of all of that. The I am is the one who has founded all of this. And then he, he ups the ante a bit here in verse 12. Nor is there salvation in any other, 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You think of, think of during Christ's time as, as he got in these debates and they were trying to catch him in blaspheming God or, or considering himself higher than, than they were. And then we look at, at the statements that these, these two are making right now, the confidence and the assurance, and, and they're not taking anything on themselves. They're saying this came about, the, everything that came about in this healing came about through the, the sacrifice and through the man, Jesus Christ, who is the son of God. Verse 13, verse 13. So the Sanhedrin's processing this. Uh, they saw what, the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that these guys are uneducated folks, untrained men. They marveled and they realized that, that these, you know, these are guys who have been with Jesus. Verse 14, seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, what could they say against it? They couldn't say anything against it. Verse 15, but when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among them, themselves saying, okay, so what are we going to do about these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem. And, and we can't deny it. No plausible deniability. It, it happened. And everybody knows that it happened. We've got, we, we, we have to acknowledge that. But so that it spreads no further among the people, well, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Now, and listen to the, the statement that Peter and John uh, make here in, the, in their confidence in this being that they serve. Peter and John answered verse 19, and he said to them, whether it's right, in the sight of God to listen to you more than to God, you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we've seen and heard. So when they had further threatened them, they let them go and they had no way to punish them. And why didn't they have any way of punish them, punishing them? Because of the people. They looked at the people that were there and all the people were glorifying God for what they had done. So here you not only have Peter and John who say, this is from Jesus Christ. This is why this happened. And then the people, all the people that are massed around, they're seeing this incredible miracle and hearing them, them preach. The people are glorifying God. So, uh, uh, you know, very carefully, very shrewdly, the Sanhedrin realized this is not a battle we're going to win today. So we need to back off at this point. So they did. So they did. Look at verse 32. As uh, Well, I, I want to come back to verse 27 first. So here they are. They're, they're thinking about all that of what happened. They're, the brethren are, are together. And they pray for God's guidance and boldness to continue to go forward. Let's pick it up in verse 27. For truly, as, as they're, they're praying, as one is praying, uh, they're praying with one accord. So you've got... Uh, an individual or maybe a couple have been praying and all of them, just like we have in a prayer here before the congregation, we're all praying with that, that person who's praying on behalf of the congregation. So here they're, they're gathered together and this, this prayer is happening. For, verse 27, for truly against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand, God, you're in charge and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness, they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed again, when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Can you imagine that happening here? Uh, that as, as we're talking and as God's people are gathered and as we're, as we're praying, that all of a sudden you've got this incredible miracle where things start shaking. Uh, you know, we may think, is there an earthquake? But, but you know, it's shaking. And we realize, and then as God, uh, we, we have God's spirit, but to be completely filled with, with God's spirit, to experience that viscerally, uh, to, to see the connectedness and the togetherness of, of this incredible miracle of God being in that, what that was like for them. 
and the excitement and the joy. God is behind this. This is not us. This is God. God is doing this. He, he, has, he has given us uh, power and strength to be able to stand before the Sanhedrin to say what the truth is and not fear man and to go forward. So they, they, they did that, and they were incredibly, incredibly heartened by that. So now let's look at what happens in verse 32. So the multitude of those who believed in, in seeing all this were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things that he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. This is uh, the first example. Uh, we, we think that the 1960s a hippie commune mo movement started in the 1960s. It actually started here, uh, just in 31 AD. Now, we know that, that that's not the case. They were, they were gathered in to, uh, to keep the Feast of Pentecost, and they wanted it to continue. They wanted the, the experience of, of what was happening as they were seeing the growth of the church explode. They want to be able to stay there as long as they can in that situation before going back. So they had folks uh, sharing and, and, and giving of this and, and, and keeping to be able to keep folks there as long as possible. Verse 33, and with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Thinking of, of him, of all of them being able to call to remembrance all these things that they experienced and, and each of the apostles being able to give that information from each own perspective of how they interacted with, with, uh, with Christ and, and what had happened. And great grace was upon them. God's favor, God's blessing, God's uh, care upon them was, was on them. They felt that, they knew that, they experienced that uh, viscerally. Nor was there anything among them who lacked, for all were possessors of lands or houses, sold them, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. And they laid them at the apostles' feet. They had distributed to each one as, as anyone had need. And there was this fellow named Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement. A Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. An example of a person who's very giving and wanted to do that to be able to continue to help uh, everyone be able to stay there together. Incredible, incredible situation that it occurred. It's neat the way that all give credit to God through all of that. Well, now we, we come to what we wanna cover today because uh, I try to think of the Batman, the best Batman terminology from back in, uh, back in the day with Adam West. I, I think we would say, and then wham, wham. <laughs> and in this case, uh, this is not a good wham, but it's a wham that hit the church and it's in Acts 5. We'll use this as a springboard for our discussion today that comes back to actually the title uh, of the message. Are we trifling? with God's spirit. When we think of Ananias and Sapphira and the, the shocking, tragic situation that happened here, have you ever thought about how, how did this happen? How did this happen to see so much togetherness and, and to see God's direct influence and power working with them? Why is it recorded? Why, why is why is that listed then? And, and why did it happen so soon? We're talking a very, very short time here after Pentecost uh, when, this, when this occurs. What miracles were involved in the Ananias and Sapphira story? Why the stiff penalty? Talk about a stiff penalty, instant death. And what does God want you and me to learn from this? What have you learned from the Ananias and Sapphira story? I believe the answers to these questions have everything to do with the meaning of this day. Everything to do with the meaning of this day for you and for me. I think it's, even though most of us know the story very well, I think it's something worth reviewing as we examine ourselves. This is a time, this is a time to examine ourselves. The Passover, as we mentioned, is a time to examine ourselves. Feast of Pentecost is the time for us in in this life, in this stage, where we see what we see going on around, the, around us in the world, what's going on in our society, what's going on in the church. 
It's a time to examine ourselves. I need to examine myself, as, do, as uh, does each of us. It has everything to do with that and for God's people as we live Holy Day season-wise between these two. So let's read the story. Let's read the story. Acts 5, verse 1. A certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. Well, so they did something similar to what Barnabas had done here, as others had done, as it talks about in previous chapters. So they, they sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it. So she knew that he had kept back part of the proceeds. It's, uh, it's inferred here, and I, and I think it's brought up a little bit more as we get to when Sapphira is, is addressed, uh, that they made it seem that they were giving everything that they had. Well, the, 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 the son of encouragement, Barnabas, had done so. They wanted it to be seen as in, in that way as well. So they brought a certain part of it and, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part? part of the price of the land for yourself. While it remained, was, was it not your own? You, know, you, we could have, you could have said, hey, I, I sold this piece of property and I, I'm keeping this amount uh, for, for, our, uh, for us as we go forward, but I want to donate this amount uh, for you um, to, to help the brethren. You could, have, you could have done that. That was within your power to do so. While it uh, remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? So there was uh, a wicked uh, imagination, a heart that devises wicked imaginations, one of the seven things that God hates in uh, Proverbs 6. Why did you conceive this thing in, in your heart? You've not lied to men, but to God. Very important. We're talking about this Holy Spirit, God's essence, his power then dwelling in, in each one of them. He's saying, not only are you lying to the spirit, you're lying to God. It's all part of that package. You're lying uh, to God himself. You're lying to the power of God. You're lying to um, what has been placed in, in the church and each individual in the church to bring them together, to experience what they're experiencing and the joy and the driving forward. Uh, You've not lied to men, but to God. So Ananias, hearing these things, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. He became very dead. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things. The young men came, they wrapped him up, and they carried him out and buried him. Verse 7, and now it was about three hours later when his wife came in. She didn't know that all this had happened. You ever think what she may have said had she known what happened? What, what, if, uh, what if she had gotten knowledge of that? that it had happened. How would she have handled that situation? She hadn't. And those, those kinds of extra opportunities are not always afforded us. In this case, she did not have any knowledge. So the question is asked here of her. So uh, Peter uh, talked with her and uh, he said, so tell, tell me whether you sold the land for, for so much. And she said, yeah, that, that's what we sold it for. Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed to test the spirit of the Lord? That the two of them agreed to test God's Holy Spirit. Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carried her out and buried her by her husband. Look at verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all those who heard these things. What do you think about fear? Do you think that was an appropriate fear that happened to the church at that time? Do you think it was a, a right kind of fear? Do you think that was part of what God was intending through this lesson? I think it was. I think it was. We'll talk uh, about uh, the reason uh, for that and, and, and how it was uh, something that was uh, in, in a right response in experiencing what they experienced. All right, so we reflect on uh, that not so wonderful story. 
Now let's, let's address some things. What's, what's, the, what's the takeaway? What are the takeaways for us today? I'm going to get... Uh, I'm going to kind of get in our business. I'm going to get a bit in, in my business, get in your business, uh, get in all of our business as we, as we talk about these things, because these are matters of the heart. These are matters that greatly affect the body of Christ. They, they greatly affect us if we are part of the body of Christ. And I think the, the first thing that I'd like to cover today as we, as we reflect on this, something that happened just after Pentecost, as God's spirit is, is flowing and as God's people are experiencing the power of, of transformed lives and the blessing of that, this happens. This happens. The first point that I'd like to talk about is little things to one who is driven by human nature may not be little things to God. Do we sometimes, have I sometimes minimized certain things? I, mean, this is, I don't think this is really that big a deal. Uh, you know, it, it seems like, okay, yeah, it was a bit of a, kind of a win-win situation, wasn't it? I, we, were, we were able to do this. Yeah, I, I didn't quite handle that quite correctly, but, but I, I was giving, and, and th- wasn't this a benefit to the church? I mean, didn't, didn't it all work out? Is it, is it that big of a thing to God? Some of you that are uh, involved in a in little bit more uh, fre- frequent, a little more regularly, the posts that are out there. I think many, uh, it's not, not any big news that uh, there, there have been some challenges in the East, uh, in the church uh, in, recent, in recent days and months. And uh, some posts that have been made and, and, uh, and positions that have been taken as a result of certain posts that were made over, over a situation that arose as pastor, I, I think I think I think we got to talk about some of these things. They're they're very challenging kinds of things. But uh, in that, uh, one of the things that was uh, I, I found especially frustrating was that the person came on and posted uh, the, the things that they posted, and and uh, so many jumped to to one side on that without hearing the other side that without thinking that there, you know, there could actually be another side to this. And, and in fact, the individuals who were dealing with the situation wouldn't even be able to talk with everybody, multitudes about the other side, even though the one side is posting everything and, and the way this person has, has been treated and everybody, and not everybody, but many jumping to that side and so quick to, to make a, an evaluation or a judgment. Now I, I point, I point, all 10 fingers, all eight fingers and two thumbs uh, at myself. I, how many times have I done that where I, I've seen something or something has happened and I thought, and I kind of come to a conclusion ahead of time without, without hearing the other side. And I, I'm, so I, I know it can happen, but I, I would think that in, in the greater church of God, that as something like that would happen, that, that folks would say, I, I, I reserve judgment on this until I, and I'll, until I hear the other side. There, there may just be another side. Uh, here's, here's the point that I want to make. One of the individuals that, that posted in that chain of postings made this statement. I can't believe that someone could get suspended or put out of the church for a for a video that a person posted, a little thing as a video that a, that a person would come and, and, and do this. Well, one, I, I don't know all the details of what happened in that situation, uh, but, but somebody had, had said that. I can't believe that you could get suspended or put out of the church over a, a video that someone posts. Such a little thing, you know, with trigger happy overseers. Uh, I, as I reflect on that, I think of that first point. Saul was dealing with the Amalekites and he was told to take care of business. And uh, he kept the the sheep. There were some incredibly beautiful sheep that would make great sacrifices. Uh, And and by keeping Agag, I think it was Agag, the Amalekite, the king alive, wipe out everybody else, but he keeps keeps the best of the sheep and, and and Agag alive because everybody could see here is this king 
that has been uh, that has been completely deposed, and he can be a figure that we can all look at and see uh, how I saw and, and, and our kingdom is over this person. How did God handle that? I mean, it makes sense. It makes sense that, okay, I, I keep the best sheep. We can sacrifice these sheep to God. Uh, was, that, was that a little thing? Was God operating on a little thing to take away the kingdom from Saul as a result of that? For Saul, in uh, the way that uh, Saul couldn't wait, for, for the sacrifice. He was waiting for Samuel. Samuel said he was going to come seven days later. The Israel starts dispersing. He's going to lose them. We've, we've got to keep them all together here for, for what's, what's coming up. If, if, if they spread all out and they're going, we can't gather them back. How are we going to be able to take care of this? I, since Samuel's not here, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this and I'm going to sacrifice this, uh, this before God. Was it a little thing? Was it a little thing when Uzzah who wouldn't have known all the rules. He saw the ark starting to go. Now, didn't know that it wasn't even being carried properly, but to the ark of God, to, to stand there, to try to support the ark of God so it doesn't, doesn't break or get damaged. And all of a sudden he's dead. What about Moses? Moses, a man who intervened for, for Israel multiple times. And on the one time, God was ready to destroy all of Israel and, and start a nation out of him. And, and Moses said, please don't do that. What are the other nations going to say, God, as they see you brought these people out and then you destroyed them? He intervened for all the people. And then in one little moment, a little thing that he did, yes, he was supposed to speak to the rock, but he, he struck the rock because he was frustrated. The meekest man on the earth was in a, in a, he was in a tight spot and he got a little frustrated and he did what he did. And as a result, through, through that situation, he was unable to go into the land of Canaan. Was that a little thing? Well, some would say it's a little thing. Was it a little thing to eat a, eat a piece of fruit? We had, we had a couple of people way back that decided to eat a couple of pieces of fruit. I can't believe that God would, would, have all of mankind be, be sent in a direction and, and bar the way to access to God as a result of a person, a couple of people just eating a piece of fruit. Uh, you know what I'm saying. Uh, what I'm saying is that as we completely fill our minds with God's spirit and as we look to give God the glory for everything that God does in our lives and for God to give the direction that, that God needs to give and completely lose ourselves in the glory of our Father, in the glory of his Son, and in striving to live in truth and right and, and, and yield to him. God, God blesses that. God works through that environment. But when we begin to let human nature guide and direct us, we can begin to minimize these things, minimize these little things here and there. And it, it's a little thing. Uh, versus it could be a very, very major thing to God. A second thing, let's turn over to uh, James 3. James 3, well, actually, I'll, I'll quote Matthew 12, verse 34. Matthew 12, verse 34, which states, breaking into the thought, that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the abundance of the heart, uh, the pen writes. Out of the abundance of the heart, the, the finger fingers type, the thumbs post, all of these kinds of things that we, we must be very, very, very careful as, as we reflect on the decisions that we make that, that could be very big things to God. Let's look at James 3. James 3 speaks to this, the this second point. So the first is the little things that we may reason in our minds through, our, through the human nature that, that can plague us. We can push out God's spirit and begin to, to let these, these things that could be very big things, if we're completely aligned with the mind of God that we would see, it doesn't become a big thing. It becomes a little thing when it's actually a big thing with God. James 3, James 3, a passage with which most of us are very familiar as well. But he talks about this difference, this difference between a, a way that is fully of God, tuning into God and thinking like God and, and thinking in, in humility with this way that is... Uh, where Satan fills your heart, as 
Peter said to Ananias. Verse 13 of chapter three, who's wise? Who's understanding among us? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and uh, self-seeking in your hearts, Mr. Hogberg in, in Dallas uh, talked yesterday about envy and jealousy, but it, it, and then this, this concept of self-seeking, this, this selfish ambition. There was some ambition there as we talked before. There was some win-win situation. Yeah, we, as we do this, Ananias and Sapphira, as we do this and, and, and we'll, we'll keep this back, it'll be okay, but we'll keep this back, but it'll give the appearance that, wow, we're, we're, really, we're really helping out here. So, you know, we win and and, and they win. It, it, it makes sense. Uh, but, but it was all underpinned by self-seeking, selfish ambition to be viewed in a way that, by others that would be pleasing. The second point is simply this. Selfish ambition and God's Holy Spirit do not mix. They do not mix. And as we examine ourselves, as I examine myself, it, you know how it is that we, we can be totally caught up and, and lose ourselves in serving God's people and serving one another and in, in, in being here and, and, and doing all that we're doing or thinking and helping people. And then, you know, there's that little comment that somebody makes, wow, that, that's, that's really great. And then we begin to think, well, yeah, this person said this about me. Wow, they think this of me. So then uh, that can quickly slide into a being motivated by pleasing this person so that this person thinks that I'm something and this person is influ influential and, and I'm gaining in notoriety here and the boom, we're off to the races. Selfish ambition uh, has taken over. Uh, he says here, but if you have en bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, don't boast and lie against the truth. This comes back again to that essence of, of, of what God's spirit is, that we worship him in spirit and in truth. Selfish ambition we're trying to create a situation to where we're perceived in a certain way that is not true, that is not true, straight as an arrow, true. Uh, he says, uh, is actually boasting and lying against the truth. This is why it was such a huge deal and why uh, I believe why he made that kind of an example of those individuals. Lying against the truth. Verse 15, this wisdom does not descend from above. It's earthly, it's sensual, it's demonic. For where envy and self-seeking, self-seeking, self-ambition, all of this exists, confusion and every evil thing are there. Everything is there. God knew as, as the church was forming and the beauty that was there, he wanted to to cause a situation to occur by their actions that would help people realize this is how, this is how confusion and, and every evil thing uh, come in and, and attack, attack the church. The wisdom of God, verse 17, is, is first pure. It's peaceable. It's gentle. It's willing to yield. Am I willing to yield to my wife? Is she willing to yield to me? Am I willing to yield to those uh, who are, are in areas of service over which I'm responsible? If they, if they have something that is, is very helpful, that, that may be a better way to do something, am I, am I willing to yield? Am I willing to yield to my, my superiors? You know, we, we think about all those kinds of things. Is, is, that, is that the nature, the spiritual nature that permeates each of us? That, that's an effect, that's wisdom from above, uh, full of mercy and good fruits without partiality and without hip hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, setting something up to be a certain way when it's really this way going on. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's come back to 2 Corinthians 5. I'm gonna talk about this, this fear, fear concept and part, partly why I think he uh, did what he did, and God intervened the way that he did there in Acts 5. Mr. Jeremy Lawyer in, in Sherman recently gave a message 
on uh, the misconceptions that we have, we can have about God. And he, he took, uh, he went through a discussion about the, uh, the Greek gods and, and their temperaments. And, you know, ultimately the Greek gods are, are representations of the various temperaments and personalities and vices of, of mankind, but the way they put those in, in, to the, the Greek gods. But, but one of the things, uh, a misconception that he talked about is that, uh, that we can, we can even have that kind of flows into us sometimes without really thinking about it is this thing of, I, God's going to zap me. You know, it, it, he's sitting up there waiting for me to mess up. So zap, he can zap me just, just like he did Ananias and Sapphira. Uh, and that, that's a total misconception as, as we know. We know that we, we serve a God that is so abundant in mercy. He's beyond all mercy. Uh, he is the most merciful being in this universe as, as uh, is talked about in, uh, in, in uh, the, the law as, as Moses is, sees the, the face uh, or the backside of God as he goes by between the cleft and the rock and he's talking about the, the mercies of God that extend, uh, extend beyond what we can even imagine. Great merciful God. But at the same time, there is a reality of this, this essence of God that he's placed in us is something with which we should not trifle. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. As First Peter 4 tells us, we are, as, as God's people, we are, uh, judgment is now upon us. We're, we're, in a sense, appearing before the judgment seat of Christ now, day in and day out. And, and judgment's a good thing. Judgment's not necessarily a bad thing. We, we appear before God. He is, he is watching us, and, and he is there to support us, and, and a great, merciful God that's kind and, and, and helping and giving. But we all, all mankind, eventually, will appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body uh, as done, whether, whether good or bad, knowing therefore, verse 11, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, the, the, ex, the exceeding fright, uh, uh, phobia, where we get the term phobia, knowing the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, we persuade men that we, we recognize as God's people that this, this power that God has given us, this essence of his is it, it is life. It's, it's our life. It is what is the down payment for eternity. As, as Christ says in John 6, you, you have this and you have eternal life. And I'll raise you up in the last day. A, a, a tremendous blessing. But it is something with which we can't play around. This isn't a game. We know that. This is not a game that we're playing. And if we begin to, to minimize things, if we begin to allow some of these things like selfish ambition to, to sneak in and, and, and get a grip on us, it begins to war against the spirit and they don't mix. Let's look at our third aspect that we want to consider today, and we won't spend a lot of time with this, but it's, it's critical for us. Uh, we've already said it. They lied to the Holy Spirit. They lied to God. They lied to, uh, in a sense, God through his Holy Spirit and the power through which he works. This Holy Spirit that is pure, that it is his essence, they, they lied to that. They, they lied to all that aspect. The Holy Spirit does not operate in lies. We must worship in spirit and in truth. And I think for, for us as God's people, it is going to be especially critical in, in going forward as we near the return of Christ to know the truth, to understand the truth, to live the truth, and, and to uh, operate within that truth. We must worship in spirit and truth. Satan, the liar, filled their hearts. He got in there and filled their hearts and caused them to, to, as they yielded to that, to lie to God and his spirit. The fourth point that I want to spend the, the last bit of time with as we uh, uh, begin to move towards the conclusion, which should probably take about another 40 minutes. No, I, hopefully we'll end about, uh, in about an hour. So we're getting close. Uh, number four, number four. And this is something that I, I think, I think we, we get this, but... Uh, I'm going to say some terms here. These individuals conspired. Do you and I ever conspire? Man, that's a rough term. They conspired. They, they schemed. They schemed. 
They employed deception. They employed hypocrisy. Not only did they deceive, but they were also self-deceived. This is, uh, I think, one of the major things that as we look at their lives and this example in Acts 5 of, of, of what happened, they agreed together to test the spirit. They, they had talked before about it. We're going to do this and we're going to create this image of what we're doing when it's actually this. And it was a big thing to God. Conspiring, scheming, deception, self-deception, all these kinds of things are very, very destructive. As we said, a heart that devises wicked, wicked imaginations. Let's go to Proverbs 7. Let's go to Proverbs 7 and read an example of, of scheming. We won't read Proverbs 1, as, as I think there are a couple of, of scheming situations into which we as God's people can fall. Uh, one is, I guess, for lack of better term, we call active scheming. Ananias and Sapphira were involved in active scheming. We're going to set this up to make it look this way, even though we're really doing this. They conspired and God hates that. God hates that as, as they did that. We see an example of, of active scheming in Proverbs 1. This group that gets together, he, the, the dad tells the son, don't get hanging out with these sinners that are enticing you. Hey, let's, let's gather together and we'll lie in wait and we'll, we'll go and we'll, we'll kill this person and take all that he has and do this and lie, lie in wait for, uh, for this to, to get things that are not, you know, get away from that. The conspiring, the active conspiring, uh, actually a horribly graphic situation that he mentions here in Proverbs 1. And he says, in, in reality, they are, they are as well self-deceived. Verse 18 says, they don't realize that they lie in wait for their own blood. They lurk secretly in their conspiring for their own lives. If we allow ourselves to get involved in any kind of, of of conspiring or any kind of manipulative kinds of things where that the mind gets working. I'm going to set it up to make it look this way for this and this and that. Uh, we're, we're, we're conspiring against God and, and we're conspiring against our own lives. Let's look at a, a second example of, of scheming. Scheming, uh, a good way to define scheming, uh, from, uh, we see this term uh, actually talked about sometimes in, in material uh, for folks dealing with coming out of addictions. But uh, one of the, the definitions for scheming is it's when a person actually plans and debates within himself how he could possibly act in his own best interests while giving off a perception of acting or behaving appropriately. Ananias and Sapphira actively schemed. But there's also a, another type of, of scheming that takes place. And this is, I guess, what we would call more of like a, a subroutine uh, scheming, a, a passive scheming that it's, it's forming here in the mind and on the conscious level, we may not really be thinking about actively doing it, but this, this process and this tendency, this pattern has been developed so much that we can step into anywhere in that pattern that's going to lead to this when we're over here doing this. And focusing on this and when everything looks good, we're scheming to begin uh, to lay the groundwork for doing something uh, that we shouldn't. It, it can be in a variety of different ways. Uh, you know, like I say, a lot of times with addictions, uh, we see that, be it, uh, you know, the vices, uh, sexual, uh, alcohol abuse, gluttony, uh, the, the kinds of things of uh, some of those, those things that person can fall, fall into and, and, and get completely taken over by. But they a subroutine that's at work in our mind, and it could be from anger, uh, and, and anger could be a trigger for it, uh, stressful situations uh, that they, they begin, they deal with the stressful situation and they've coped with that stressful, stressful situation for so many years by going into this pattern and doing that. So they can even, in some cases, say a person deals with anger or, or is dealing with some kind of vice, he or she gets involved in even a, an anger situation has always been a trigger for him to start down this pattern to go there. So he gets angry and realizes in the back of his mind that that's going to be the pattern that he uses to ultimately get into something that he shouldn't be doing. 
doing. I don't know if that makes sense, but that, that, is, that is something that can happen in uh, the addictive mind. And it, but it can happen in all of us. I've been good. I've, I've been eating right. Uh, I, I've been uh, really taking care of my body and, and this and that. But man, I just want to pig out. I want to, and, and you know, a person that struggles with overeating, compulsive eating, and, and they've done so well, but even, even the doing well in, in planning what they're eating, they're setting up this thing of at some point in their mind, they're scheming because they know that I have gotten to this point, And when I get to this point, I feel like I've done so well that now I can take a break and the subroutine of, of the uh, scheming for the time that the person's going to overindulge and overeat and, and, uh, and go down that path. All, all of those things, envy, jealousy, laziness, uh, returning evil for evil, self-promotion, all those kinds of things. Scheming can be happening behind the scenes. Here's an example of scheming in Proverbs 7. Yeah, let's, let's look at it. Proverbs 7, verse, verse 1. Proverbs 7, verse 1. So here he is, this individual has, has uh, and it, it's talking about the situation of, of getting involved in um, sexual promiscuity. Proverbs 7, verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure my commands within you. Keep my commands and live, and my law is the apple of your eye, the, the, the truths of God. Keep, keep them close. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart, not just to know them knowledge, but knowledgeably, but to put them in the heart that God's spirit enables us to do, to write the law in our hearts. Say to wisdom, you're my sister, and call understanding my nearest kin, and that will keep you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words. Now notice the scheming that goes on here. For he says, for at the window of my house, I looked and okay, I'm seeing this guy. Here he is. I, I saw among the simple, I perceived among the youths, uh, a young man devoid of understanding, passing along the street near her corner, and he took the path to her house. Whoa, whoa, whoa wait a second. What? Uh, passing the street along her corner, he knows what's there. He knows what's there. He knows it's not right. And yet he's, I'm, I'm going that direction. I'm going to go that direction. See, see, what, see what happens. I don't know. He knows what's there. Uh, so it, it's, it, it's happening. And look, look how it, it continues to set. So he, he takes the path to her house in the twilight, in the evening, in the black and dark night. And there was a woman uh, there that met him with the attire of a harlot, a crafty heart. She was loud and impudent, rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. At times she was outside, at times in the open square, lurking at every corner. She grabs him and, and kissed him with an impudent face, a shameless face, and said to him, I have peace offerings with me. I, I've paid my vows Come and come to meet you diligently to seek your face. I spread my bed with tapestry, cover, colored coverings of Egyptian linen. I perfumed my bed, all of these things. Let us take our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. My husband's not home. He's gone on a long journey. He's taken a bag of money with him and will come home on the appointed day. So with her enticing speech, she caused him to yield. Think about that. Why, why would he say that? Was he, it's saying he yielded, but so, so that must have meant that he didn't go for the full intent. If he, if he went for the full intent to do that, it wouldn't have been a yielding. He's going and pursuing it. It's this, this subroutine, I, I submit to you. It's a, a subroutine that's going on. He, he is scheming to know that this, this is going to happen. That was a desire of his, even though he didn't make it look like he was going uh, directly after her. He, he ends up yielding to her. With her flattering lips, she seduced him, and he went in as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a fool to the correction of the stocks. And put, put any vice in, in place of this. It, it's that pattern that happens. Till an arrow struck his liver as a bird hastens to the snare. He did not know it would cost him his life. It was a big deal. It was a big deal. God's way of life is a, is a big deal to us. Are we going to combat these kinds of things that work against the spirit. I'd like to wrap it up as we look at a few passages to talk about just uh, three little areas on how to, they're not little, they're huge, but I'll, I'll cover them quickly, on how to combat these kinds of things. One is 2 Corinthians 4.2. Let's read that. Here we, we see in, in, in verse 18 of chapter 3 that we, we have been transformed uh, 
by, from glory to glory by the spirit of the Lord. It's a beautiful thing that what God is doing in us, he's changing us, incredible power as we yield to him. And yet he says in verse one of chapter four, uh, what happens as a result and what we should do as a result. Therefore, since we have his, have this ministry as we've received mercy, uh, we have renounced the hidden things of shame. You, are you and I and renouncing the hidden things of shame? That's, that's a way to combat uh, the, these things that attack God's spirit, to renounce the hidden things of shame, to not walk in craftiness, to not handle the word of God deceitfully, to use, God as a, uh, use God's word as a weapon or to twist this or that for our purposes. Some get into that mode and that is very, very destructive spiritually. You talk about... Uh, uh, an arrow striking our liver if we, if we handle the word of God deceitfully. But by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God, when we renounce the hidden things of shame and fully come to God, recognizing his strength uh, and his guidance uh, to, to pull us out of the things into which we can fall, uh, God guides us and gives us success. A second area is in Psalm 51 that speaks to what happened with, uh, speaks to what happened specifically with Ananias and Sapphira. God used Peter to tell them to whom they had lied. David knew to whom he had sinned or against whom he had sinned. Ananias and Sapphira, so filled with human nature and so filled with selfish ambition, got so caught up in that that they didn't realize I'm, I'm doing this against God. I am affronting God. David, and that's one of the beautiful things about David, uh, that, that God, uh, why God appreciated this individual so much. He repented big. He knew he had sinned against God. He didn't, he didn't deny it and he openly admitted that and turned to him. As Psalm 51 says, uh, let's look there, Psalm 51, just uh, the first few verses there. Psalm 51, verse one, Psalm 51, verse one, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies. Yes, God is a great and tender and merciful God. Blot out my transgressions. God can do that. God does that for us. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, God, he recognized the, the heart of where he had sinned against and to whom he had uh, wronged. Against you and you only have I sinned and done evil in your sight. And the last, the last thought is, let's go to John 16. As we go forward, so critical for, for you and so critical for me because any one of us can get caught up in not valuing, in not recognizing the, the power and the, the seriousness of this incredible presence that God has placed in us to where we can slip. We must, all of us must allow God's truth to permeate us, to permeate every facet of our lives. God, as I read and study your word, we, sh we should pray as I read and study your word through the power of your Holy Spirit, help that word, your words, come into every aspect of my life. As I examine myself, help your word to, to shine light on every aspect because I want to be like you. I wanna be transformed by the power of your Holy Spirit. I want to be in a relationship with you for eternity. And only you can provide that, God, uh, as, as we go through in our, in our prayer life. Uh, John 16, John 16, verse 13. John 16, verse 13, he says, when the spirit of truth, it's not a spirit of error, it's a, God's spirit, his essence, he hates lies. But when the spirit of truth has come, it will guide you into all truth, all truth. And it will guide, it will not speak of its own authority, but whatever it hears, it will speak and it will tell you the things to come. It will glorify me for it will take of what is mine and declare it to you. All things that the father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he will take of mine and declare to you all things that the father has are Jesus Christ's and all things that Jesus Christ has are the father's. And Jesus Christ is going to give us 
as, as joint heirs with him all things. Finally, let's go to 2 Corinthians 13. So as we reflect on the life of uh, the short life, the short time in the faith of Ananias and Sapphira, may we, as we leave the day of Pentecost today and reflect on the incredible power that God has placed in us to, to be together, to be connected, help us look at our lives individually. Help us look deeply deeply seeking to be like him in every, in every way that we can. 2 Corinthians 13 will conclude with Paul's concluding statements to the brethren after talking about examining themselves as, as uh, they're to go forward. He says in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, finally, my brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. As we do so, the God of love and peace will be with each of us. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you, Paul says. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship, the, the connection that you and I have of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.